Hi, I'm Dr. Hillary McBride. Normally, therapy sessions are totally confidential, but in other people's problems, I open the doors to let you hear sessions with my long-standing clients. This is what people sound like when they talk with someone they trust about healing addiction, parenting stress, racist ideologies in the family, and other topics that feel so timely as we come through this difficult time. Other People's Problems, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. If you think about the stereotypical life of a student, what are you imagining? If you ask that question online, you might find, as I did, a helpful bucket list for the university student. Quoting here, from pranks to pre-drinks, make sure you tick them all off before you graduate. Nowhere will you find, take a vow of silence, perform an act of kindness every day, meditate, abstain from sex, and from technology. But all of these rules for living are part of a course at the University of Pennsylvania. It's called Living Deliberately, Monks, Saints, and the Contemplative Life. The course was created by Justin McDaniel, professor of religious studies. I teach in an Ivy League school. I teach at a very high-powered, I think we accept 4% of students. You know, we have the number one business school in the world. You know, a lot of these students their solution and the university's solution, if you ever have a problem, is to add more counselors or to add meditation, add yoga, add soul cycle. The point is that we add more things onto them. And what I'm asking is that we remove things. And remove things they do. Apart from the vow of silence and steering clear of technology, students abstain from eating meat. They vow not to touch alcohol. Well, with one crafty little loophole. The students can have alcohol if they make their own. And I have one student who learned how to distill whiskey and make beer, and he was very good at it, and his profession came. He had no career aspirations in this, and he ended up opening a rum distillery in New Orleans after graduating, and it won the best rum of the year. McDaniel says it may sound counterintuitive, but it's something monks and contemplatives figured out centuries ago. When you take things away from your daily life, you might find that you're somehow adding to it. And his students tend to agree. I've peeked behind the curtain. And once you have, you can't kind of like undo that. It's something that gnaws at me when I find myself really like lacking presence is this part of me that was so energized, so kind of intense for, for that time period and knowing that that person kind of like exists. Living deliberately, today on Tapestry, I'm Mary Hines. It's known as the Monk Class, and it's taught by Justin McDaniel, Professor of Religious Studies and the Edmund J. and Louise W. Kahn Endowed Professor of the Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania. Justin McDaniel is my guest. Hello to you. Hi. Hi. Nice to be here. Thank you. Good to have you here. So <laughs> I'm afraid my student years were more along the lines of uh, pranks and pre-drinks. So I, <laughs> I am really curious. When the syllabus says, you'll be living like a monk, are there a lot of 20-year-olds who are up for it? 
Uh, yes. Uh, I've taught the course since 2002. It gets a lot of students. So for every, generally, I accept 14 students, sometimes up to 20. Uh, but every single time I've offered it in the last 15 years at least, it's gotten over 300 applications usually. What do you think is behind the hunger? Why so many more applicants than spaces available? Well, I think uh, for some, it's this idea that I won't be taking exams and writing papers. Uh, they're quickly disabused of, of the ease of it, so then they, they drop out. But most people are really craving a break. They're craving a break from their cell phones, a break from computers, um, a break from the need to respond constantly 24 hours a day the need to uh, even show up for social events. And I mean, they can go to academic events and social events, so they just can't speak. So a lot of them people, a lot of them don't. But I think they're craving, they're craving some silence. They're craving to get off the cause and effect train that they're on and the ambition train that they're on. Help me sketch this out. The rules don't apply merely when they're within your classroom during the length of the course. These These are rules for living. Yeah, it's rules for living. It's it's all the time. Yeah. And and so how do they navigate that if they can't speak in in math class or or in philosophy class? It's it's a great question. So the course is I think a standard course at Penn is sixteen weeks. Most universities sixteen week semesters, and so they slowly build up these things. So they start speaking less and less. They get down to a hundred words a day. They get down to an hour use of technology a day over time. And then the full restrictions last of, of 30 days so a month where they can't use any technology except for electric lights. They can't even use a digital camera or anything like that. And in a photography class, they have to use film cameras. No internet, no television, no radio, no communication of any kind, no speaking. Um, and by that time, they've prepared their bosses and their other professors. I get sign-offs from all the other professors that they have my students in their class. And the vast majority of professors, the absolute vast majority, 99%, are incredibly supportive because they realize that the students will work ahead. They'll get most of their work done ahead. My students generally do, not generally, universally, do much better in their other courses than they've ever done before. Uh, They participate in class. They go to class. They can hold up a notepad and they can write notes, um, but they are attentive listeners often. And when they write notes, they can't use computers, so handwritten notes to their professors or other students after a class discussion, they're usually incredibly thoughtful and attentive. My students have more time to read and prepare for their other classes. I've even had students in computer science classes, and professors have told me they've never seen a student code by pencil, <laughs> um, and how, impre- how impressive it is, because they can see, well, that's what, not what they did growing up, but what their, their teachers did, that they, you know, they worked with punch cards way back when. I've had students in theater classes who've acted on stage in pure silence, and a theater professor once told me they've never seen such good acting because the student couldn't depend on words. And so we have, I've had you know, students with part-time jobs who worked in banks or worked in stores, and they've worked with their bosses, and they've you know, done stocking, or they've done uh, work in, you know, in the background. And so they make it work, and because they're well-prepared. This is such a radical departure, I'm guessing, from the way all of them live their lives. What's the adjustment process like to the extent that you can ever generalize about something like this? How do they navigate it in in the early days, living a life that is so dramatically different? 
Well, again, they're pretty well prepared. And so by the time they go into full silence, they're really craving at this point. I mean, we have a little ritual of them putting their cell phones into this locked box. And they have dressing restrictions, so they're dressing differently. Women are dressing in black. Men are dressing in white. Um, They've slowly given up a lot of things. They've formed a community, and so they generally eat together because they've spending restrictions. So they pool their money to get discounted, you know, rice and beans and, and things like that that are affordable. So they formed a community amongst themselves, a silent community amongst themselves, and they're really craving it by the time it starts because it's actually more irritating to speak 100 words than speak none um, because their boyfriends or girlfriends or their best friends or their parents will say, well, can't you make an exception for me or use all your 100 words on me? And, and then there's some foreign students, of course, that are used to FaceTiming with parents or talking on parents with the phone from a great distance. And so... Their parents get anxious about it more than the students do, and the students are almost relieved when they have an excuse to say, no, I'm silent now. Now, they can write letters home. Parents can visit. I mean, there's, they're not isolated. They just can't speak or use technology. What's behind the wardrobe restrictions, the, the women in black and the men in white? It's just arbitrary that all monastic traditions throughout the world, um, the two largest being Buddhist and Catholic, but... Oh, every religious tradition of some has some sort of monastic tradition or contemplative tradition, and every single one of them has restrictions on gender, but also restrictions on clothing, hair, things like that. When you created this course, when you were first dreaming it up, what did you have in mind as being at the heart of it? What, what are you trying to convey as a teacher? Well, it came out of a little bit of a frustration. I was teaching for the first time at Ohio University. I actually started to develop it when I was a graduate student, but I didn't have a chance to teach it. But I was developing it there because I was a teaching assistant for a class in in monastic history, and then I taught monastic history. And my students, I couldn't really answer the basic question a lot of them had, is that why would anyone do this? Why would every religious tradition, every culture on earth have some sort of ascetic practices, whether it's celibacy or hair and clothing restrictions or um, restrictions on the movement of body or restrictions on spending, on silence? And we can find this throughout history. And we can give psychological answers and sociological answers. We can give Marxist answers. We can give performative studies answers. We, we can theorize this, and, and, and many people have. Um, but it doesn't really add up to why someone who apparently wants nirvana or heaven or some sort of paradise, they want happiness in their life, either in this life or the next. Why would they put themselves through pain and restriction to get that? Like, it doesn't seem logical. And so I said, well, why don't we try it? You know, my experience in monasteries, it's not a restrictive. It is restrictive, of course, but it was a beautiful life. It was a very happy life. It was a very liberating life. And most of the monks and nuns I've met and interviewed, and I've met thousands and thousands over the years in different contexts, say very similar things, that they don't see it as restrictive. They see it as liberating uh, mentally and spiritually and psychologically and emotionally. And so I said, well, why don't we just try this? And I tried it with a weekend with the students saying, okay, you know, let's, let's be silent for this weekend as a group. And, and then it just started growing and growing. And, and the students liked it so much that I said, okay, let's make this a formal course then. And, and then it's, that's where it took off. On one level, it's clear what they're getting into. They know what they're getting into. But do you ever have students come to you partway through the course saying, I, I just can't? Uh, no. Uh, actually, you would think. You know, they're so prepared because they have to apply for the course about six months before it starts. 
and they go through interviews and they go through stages. And I'm getting students from nursing, business, engineering, philosophy, computer science, theater, fine arts, you know, all over the place and um, from freshmen to seniors. And they're really motivated. And so by the time they get in the class, they're pretty committed. And then they form a community amongst themselves. I mean, they have to get up all at 5.30 every day uh, throughout the whole course, 16 weeks. And so they're getting up, they're spending time with each other, and largely without me there. I mean, I'm there for a lot of it, but most of the time they're with each other. And uh, once they're committed, they're pretty committed. Doesn't mean they don't have bad days. I get many tears. They have to journal every half hour. Um, and so they have to write something in their journal every half hour. And sometimes you get very long journal entries when they're feeling lonely or isolated. I talk to parents a lot on phones or meet them and, and you know relay messages back and forth. And there's, there's struggle and you have to be present with the students and you have to support them. And of course, if they needed to see a therapist, that's, there's no problem with that. Or if they have their own religious practice, of course, they continue that. Um, or you know, medical care, all of those things are, are in place. But they're really eager to do it. So I've, knock on wood, I've never had a student drop out. You've never had a student drop out? No. no. I mean, not since the when the silence starts. You know, in the first week or so, I've had one or two students. And gen- generally, it's because uh, parents finally realize, oh, my, s- my child is actually going to do this, and they put a, their foot down, and that's fine. You know, I've had athletes take it and, you know, talked with coaches because they can play the game. They just can't communicate with the team meetings on email or communicate with they're on the field, and they have to try to not touch another human being because touching is restricted. So... It's a struggle. It's a struggle for many of them, but I'm amazed how little it's a struggle. And then I'm also amazed how few students are aching to speak to people at the end. They really don't want to. They get afraid to all of that because they find so much freedom in their day. They find so much uh, time to read or they have time to walk or they feel much healthier in their eating habits. Um, they're sleeping better. And so a lot of them, it's more of, a, oh, I can't believe I've waited so long to do this instead of I can't wait to this ends. But there are certainly students that the, when the last day comes, they go out and they have a party. I mean, that happens too. When the syllabus says you will be living like a monk, are there really students who are up for it? You're about to hear from three people who took the Living Deliberately class in the fall of 2016. They say the course was both profound and challenging in ways they didn't expect. Here's what it was like in the early days. So when we go into the course, it's a normal everyday college class. You showed up in a building, right? But there's a dress code. Girls, all black, no makeup. Uh, Men, white, all white. We were given names. We were not allowed to refer to ourselves by our identity. My name is Carolina Hernandez. I am a special education teacher in New York City. I took the Living Deliberately course fall of 2016. I was known as Sister Shreya, there was the brother Masuda. That's how we referred to each other. We, we, we were to remove everything that we defined ourselves in in our quotidian lives and just exist as Sister Shreya. My monastic name during the class was Sister Akasha, which means big sky or heaven or clear sky. My name is Claire Elliott. I am currently a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania studying Buddhism. And I took Living Deliberately with Professor McDaniel in the fall of 2016. 
My monastic name was Brother Vasuda, which translates to the wealth granter, I believe. My name is Camber Moss. I currently work in software sales, and I took the Living Deliberately class in the fall of 2016. We had to write every 30 minutes. No matter where you were, what you were doing, you had to write in a journal and write whatever was going on in your mind. You could write an observation. I also did like art with words and stuff like that. You could do whatever you want. Oh, I've, I've turned the page. I will not be sharing that page, but I do have a note here um, actually about third order thinking and about how heartbreaking it must be for Justin McDaniel to teach this class and teach it over and over and relive all of our moments of suffering and crisis. So <laughs> there's something a little bleak. Um, and then 30 minutes later, I wrote, I'm making apple cider. <laughs> we compile two, three, four, five books of notes just of our thoughts. And Professor McDaniel would go through those every two weeks or so and he would come up with a bespoke kind of activity that he felt like was maybe lacking in your life. So for me, it was, hey, you don't have any female friends aside from, or females that you're connected to, women that you're connected to, aside from your girlfriend and your mom. My task to you is find a girl that you don't know, walk with her an hour to the Philadelphia Zoo, take down her thoughts the entire time. Or he said, there's not enough music in your life. Go to this cafe at this time, listen to jazz for an hour. It's, it was just so incredible, you know, the heart that he put into each individual student and really trying to find what he felt, you know, was, was missing or could help kind of help us on this journey. Carolina Hernandez, Claire Elliott, and Camber Moss, three of the students who completed Justin McDaniel's Living Deliberately course in the fall of 2016. You're with Tapestry. Thanks for inviting us in. Whether it's on podcast, on the CBC Listen app, or on CBC Radio 1, if you're listening online at cbc.ca slash tapestry, hello to you. I'm Mary Hines. My guest is Justin McDaniel, who created the course known as the Monk Class at the University of Pennsylvania. So no cell phones, no speaking, um, no alcohol, no dancing, no sex. The students can have alcohol if they make their own <laughs> and under restricted traditions. And I have one student who learned how to distill whiskey and make beer, and he was very good at it. And his profession came. He had no career aspirations in this, and he ended up opening um, a rum distillery in New Orleans after graduating, and it won the best rum of the year that year. So this is a student who was a math major, had no interest in liquor whatsoever, and he discovered a passion for it. So there you go. And you can eat, you can eat meat if you kill the animal yourself. And one student had a pet rabbit and no. killed his pet <laughs> rabbit and, and served it to everyone. Yeah, well, he was planning it. He was a farmer. He was planning on killing rabbit anyway because um, he grew up doing that. Um, so it wasn't strange for him. But when I said that as a joke, you can kill your own animal, I didn't realize that one of my students actually would because they had before. This was They grew up on a farm. So I, my question was going to be, why does it have to be this strict? I mean, when, when you think of the no phones, no speaking, no alcohol unless you've made it, no meat unless you've killed it, no sex, no spices, why 
are the rules of this course so exacting? My field is monastic history and different traditions. And I looked at many different traditions, and I just see, see what rules were across the board. And I said, okay, well, here's certain things that a lot of different religions and cultures share. You don't have to have any religious belief to be in class. You don't have to have any faith. Some of my students are religious, but most are not. And so I largely went on that. And also, religion, I think we often think about it as something you believe in, which is true in some extent, but it's also something you do. There's plenty of people who say they believe in things, but then do anything to back it up. And there's plenty of religious people who do things, and they don't know why they do things. They do things through ritual, through tradition, and things like that. So I asked them to explore ideas of belief, explore ideas of practice, look at things versus orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. And, and we explore this in class, and I have lectures on monastic history. Before the silent period, we have discussions and things like that. They have reading. And so they've thought a lot of, about this, but I guess the point is, and it's a good question you're asking, is that if you give an inch, they take a mile, and every human being will do that, right? And, and that's understandable. When students have emotional problems or they're dealing with stress or they are anxious about their future or they worry about their choices, all of these things that happen to every human being, student or not, is our solution oftentimes in university campuses. And I teach in an Ivy League school. I teach at a very high-powered, I think we accept 4% of students. You know, we have the number one business school in the world. All, all of the Elon Musk went to our school. You know, like we have, this is a high-powered place. And a lot of these students, their solution and the university's solution, if you ever have a problem, is to add more counselors or to add, add meditation, add yoga, add soul cycle, um, add wellness programs. All of these things are fine. I approve of, of any. I'm not against any of these things. But the point is that we add more things onto them and we put more things into their schedule. And what I'm asking is that we remove things. And what is the thing that is distracting you the most, causing the most anxiety? Oftentimes it's social media or it's constantly texting. I think the average Penn student, they did some study, the average Penn student answers a text within 19 seconds <laughs> so that they spend more than eight and a half hours online a day, whether it's passively or directly, is that if you start to take away those things and say, okay, we're not going to add on a wellness program or add on a talk you go to or add on no offense, a podcast or add on, um, you know, uh, a self-help program or add on biking or jogging or swimming or yoga. We're not going to add anything on. We're simply going to remove things and see if that helps. And it oftentimes does. And that's what monastic tradition is. It's not adding more to life. It's taking away things from life. It's recalibrating. It's rebooting in a sense. It's taking a break from normal neural pathways of what you're supposed to do and what you're supposed to be in a day. And most students find that, that it's not that they're participating in conversations. They're just waiting for their turn to talk or that they're not actually saying things. They already have prefunctory answers to most questions that they have a rote way of being in the world, and, and most human beings do. And what if we just took a break from that and start to reflect on, well, what would I have said in this situation? Or what would I have done in this situation? And was, would that have really been my choice? Or do I just go through my days largely unconscious, going from one obligation to the next, cause and effect? And when you break that chain, I often find that students 
feel very liberated. They feel very calm. And they want it to be strict. They want the restrictions to be heavy and total. Because if you give them a little bit, it's so easy for them to slip back into that pattern. Like if you give them a day off or you give them, a, you know, as Catholics would say, like a dispensation or something like that, is that they really want it to be universal. And so I'm responding really to student needs more than anything else. It's a hard class for me to teach because it takes so much of my time. So if the students didn't want it, I don't know if I would be doing it. As the Living Deliberately course continued, the students had to get comfortable with letting go of pretty much everything. Here's what they had to say about navigating new restrictions and what it was like to tackle the biggest restriction of them all. There was a month of full silence, but there was also before that, I think two weeks where we were only supposed to use 100 words a day. And so it felt like much longer than a one month of silence because we had this longer period where we were sort of getting into it. It's kind of hard to talk about it. Um, if you haven't experienced something like this, it is both a beautiful and strikingly like tragic experience. So essentially, it's not just like not talking, like you can't look people in the eye during this month. You can't have physical contact with people. Like, let's say you were like giving money to the cashier. You couldn't be touching the money the same time the cashier was because that essentially is physical touch, right? It's like little things like that we couldn't do. I think I played an interesting role in the class in that I was very heavily involved in Greek life uh, during this time. I quickly realized that living in a fraternity house with other guys, at least amongst my friends, wasn't going to work. One friend in particular within the first couple of weeks, he knew about the no touching uh, policy and essentially, you know, cornered me in a hallway and pinned me up against the wall, just trying to harass me. And, you know, kind, kind of funny, but at the time I was more, more pissed off because this is something that I was taking extremely seriously, you know, more so than most other things in my life. And I think when you're not in the class, you don't understand really how seriously we're all taking this. Um, so I actually had to move out of the fraternity house and move in kind of with my uncle who lived in the area in order to fully um, embrace what I wanted to kind of live as the essence of the class. I always thought I was an introvert and like, I was like, oh, I'm like a loner, right? I don't need people. And then I realized I like how much, so much of my joy and my day-to-day -day involved people and like my need to like hug and talk and, you know, comfort. And that was very difficult. My friends were going through some difficult things and I couldn't comfort them at all. I couldn't, they would just come sit next to me and they're like, I know you can't talk, but I'm just gonna tell you. And that was really hard. I ran into a friend that I hadn't seen in a year and I couldn't look him in the eyes and he was like, I can't hug you, can I? And I just burst into tears, just sobbing because here's someone that I love so deeply and I can't, I, I, I'm, I felt like a ghost among the living. From the valve silence and removing kind of all of those uh, distractions, kind of a, at least initially a little bit more of a melancholy because you're not getting these hits of dopamine all the time but on vice versa, much more reflective. So I just found myself caring so much more about issues with myself around the world. So extremely much more reflective. I think we expend a lot of our energy outside of ourselves with friends, with electronics, and it leads to this like feeling of tiredness and exhaustion. And it was uh, pretty interesting to find myself being like super you know, energetic, pretty much for entire days and then falling asleep very easily 
um, at night and then rising again with the sun. You weren't allowed to read it for fun. You weren't allowed to like just kill time. Couldn't look at a clock. Couldn't walk. Even if the TV was on, you ignored it. So I went on a walk and I was just sobbing, right? Like I was just like, what is this? And then all of a sudden it's cold November in Philadelphia. The wind's whipping through me and the sun is shining and I look up and I just start laughing because I'm like, oh my gosh, this is life. This is what it means to live. Like I am just enjoying the wind on my skin and the sun and really nothing else matters. And then after that first two weeks, it just, I got so comfortable. I didn't have to explain myself to people. I didn't have to prove myself. I didn't have to define myself constantly. I just was what I was. When the month of silence ended, there was cause for celebration, but the return to so-called normal wasn't always easy. I started getting scared about leaving this cocoon, this safe haven that we I had created for myself. It was really kind of funny when, uh, when midnight struck on that day. I just screamed a very loud curse word, not even gonna say it, screamed at my roommate Sharon's like, oh my God. Um, and then she's like, oh, we're going somewhere. I'm like, what do you mean we're going somewhere? And apparently my friends threw a surprise party for our end of monkhood. And I just started to cry. I was so overwhelmed. It was so many people and so much touching that like, I just, I kind of had a little bit of a mental breakdown. And my friends understood. They were like, this is a lot for her. So I lived in a 10 person house and keeping a vow of silence for a month was difficult, but everyone in the house had been really supportive. And the night that we got to break our vow was a friend's birthday, like at midnight, that was the start of her birthday. And so uh, she threw a big party so we could then also drink and we could, you know, hug our friends, we could do everything. And uh, it was a really good party. And then I absolutely lost my voice. Like after that night, I, I pretty much couldn't talk for another week because uh, a party after having not used my like vocal cords for a whole month uh, really, really tore them up. <laughs> Thinking about what I first did when our you know restrictions were lifted, I think the thing that I most vividly remember was being handed back my phone and not being excited about it. And I love thinking back to that moment of the phone feeling like a foreign object in your hand. You actually, I actually could barely remember how to use it. It took me a couple minutes and it sounds crazy, but it shows just how non-essential it is. And so that was my most vivid memory was holding that phone in my hand and just being like, huh, I really don't miss this at all. It took me a bit. Some of my uh, friendships did suffer. I had a hard time being able to reconnect because, you know, one of my best friends was like, well, why isn't she back to normal? Like, why aren't you? I'm like, I, I'm not who I was before. I'm not. So if you expect me to be chipper or like, it just can't, you know, you're forever changed by those experiences. So it took me a bit and it took my friends a bit and my family a bit to adjust to my, my new demeanor in a sense. Carolina Hernandez, Claire Elliott, and Camber Moss, three of the students who completed Justin McDaniel's Living Deliberately course in the fall of 2016. This is Tapestry, keeping you company and helping you make sense of the world. You'll find us online at cbc.ca, on the CBC Listen app, on Spotify, on SiriusXM Satellite Radio, and on CBC Radio 1. 
I'm Mary Hines. I, I'm struck by how often the word liberating is coming up in, mm. in our conversation and liberation. Why do you think the whole world conspires to label an approach like this as restrictive or punitive or drastic? I, I don't I don't know. <laughs> Actually, I mean, that's a great question. It does seem that we put ourselves, and many poets have said this and many philosophers have said that we put ourselves in our own prisons. Uh, I mean, James Baldwin famously, you know, talked about this. And it's true that we are choosing most of our obligations. We are choosing most of our consumption, you know, beyond our needs for food and shelter, right? That we are adding on these things ourselves and the things that we own start to own us, right? That we start to be chained to passwords and we we start to be chained to our bills. And, we, and that we look back on a month or we look back on a year and said, wow, I did a lot of things that I didn't have to do and I chose to do them. No one was forcing me to do them. And what if I just said, I'm going to cut that back? But most of us can't cut that back. And so we, the monastic program is, and I think that's why human beings developed it in many ways. I mean, there's lots of reasons they developed. This is not the only reason, but that every culture has some sort of Sabbath built into it, some sort of break, whether it's by lunar calendar or by holidays or things like that. We have a break, we have holidays. And those holidays used to be days of rest. Now they're usually days of travel or they're days of, of, you know, working on your house or your lawn or things like that. So we filled them up. But that there is a human need just for a, a break. And if the break isn't for highly ambitious students, highly accomplished students, and students that are constantly given models of excellence and models of success, if you don't enforce the break, they won't take it. I have very, very hardworking students, and generally their form of break is annihilating themselves through you know, heavy drug use or heavy drinking or staying up late. And I'm not against any of these things. Students can have fun. I certainly did when I was younger, and I certainly do now. But that what if we said, okay, we're not going to drive ourselves to exhaustion, that our only form of break will be kind of you know, erasing our memory through alcohol. Again, I'm not, I'm Irish, I'm not against alcohol, I'm not against these things, but that, um, I mean, it built my culture. But that, and I'm Catholic too, so that built my culture. We're the only religion that forces you to drink it once a week. That's a good point. But, also Irish Catholic yes. here, so I can laugh along with you. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not throwing the Irish under the bus, I'm, you know. But is that, what if the break was not adding something else, adding a party, adding a great dinner, adding a ritual, adding weed or, or whiskey or something like this? What if it was simply just not doing anything? How often in our day do we do nothing? Uh, I remember with my children when they were young, it wasn't always successful, but I, I tried to institute a half hour of day of doing nothing, no learning, no growing, no napping, like just sitting and doing nothing. And it was amazing talking to them afterwards and saying, wow, they saw a picture on the wall that they grew up seeing on the wall and they never noticed before. Or that, you know, they started asking questions of like, why did you choose this color carpet? Or why did you choose, you know, and that basic questions that don't are not profound, but that they started to notice their very presence and started to notice um, how they walk through and be in the world. And most of us don't notice these things. We go from one task to the next. 
Tell me about a time when a student was maybe taken aback at realizing, wow, I can, I can do this thing. I have so many stories. Uh, I remember one, one of my students named Beatrice. This is many years ago. She got very into making uh, pot ceramics. Um, this was just her pastime, and, and she was really good at it um, and really enjoyed it. And she was asked by someone, like, what have you learned in this course? And she goes, I've learned the art of single tasking, is that when I make a pot, I make a pot. That's all I'm doing. When I walk, I walk. When I chew, I chew. And how liberating is to just do the thing that you're doing. And I'm sitting now. I'm just sitting. And it's it's not all kind of hippy-dippy. I'm not trying to, you know, it, it's, it's that, wow, this is such a simple thing to say, but I found it so profound the way she put it, is that I, I like being present in my actions. And generally in the past, I was thinking about future anxiety or worrying about past mistakes. I wasn't actually doing the thing I was in front of me. I was worried about the result of it, or I was trying to get out of doing it, or I was wondering when it was going to be over. I mean, how many of us have picked up a book and counted the number of pages? I mean, gone to the back and see how many pages are there, you know, instead of just enjoying the page you're on or lamenting that the book's about to be over and what am I going to read next? Just be present in the story. And I had another great student. I've told this story before. This was years ago, at least 20 years ago. And she she was an older student. She was 28 years old, so the oldest student I had. And she was a single mother. And she interviewed for the course to take the course, and she had a full-time job as well. So she was balancing a lot, a child, work, and school. And I said, I don't know if this course is really for you. This is very difficult. She had a nine-year-old child, and that, you know, not I, I have children. Not speaking to your child is going to be very difficult. But then I interviewed the child. She's like, well, if you want to meet my son, I did. And he was all on board. And they were just going to do this. And she was, you know, was worried about him as a child being addicted to electronics and television and things like that. So these, she thought this would be good for both of them. And I was all for it. When she was in the month of silence, she did great in the course. When she was in the month of silence, she came to my office crying one day. Again, this was a hardworking adult with a child. This was not a, a person that was used to breaking down and crying. She was very tough and very focused. And I said, oh, please, uh, you know, I won't use her, uh, her name. We'll just call her Sarah. So I said, you know, Sarah, you know, what, what's wrong? And if do you want to talk about something or do you just want to sit in the room and cry? I can leave if you need a space. And she goes, no, she goes, I was on the way, you know, I uh, just dropped off my son at school and I was on the way to my job and I started hearing uh, my, something wrong with my tire in my car. I started hearing this thump, 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 thump. And she got really worried. She needed her car. She depended on it. Uh, she needed it for work. She needed to pick up her child. She needed to get to school. She couldn't afford a car repair at that time. She was a little stressed out for money that month, as she was most months. And she was just very stressed out, she said, hearing the sound. What could this be? What could this be? What could this be? She stopped at a red light. Sound goes away. She starts up, gets grows larger and louder and louder, and she's wondering what it is. And then she realized all she was hearing was her tire on the street. She had never been in a car before without the radio on, without talking to somebody on the phone, without, um, you know, complaining about something, without music or, or talk radio or, you know, something, or lost in kind of stress and thought. And she said, I was just actually hearing what my car sounded like. And she said, 
I hear this car every single day, and I've heard this car for 10 years, and I never knew what it sounded like. And she goes, and it was so profound what she said to me. She goes, I don't care what I'm doing. I'm starting to care what I'm missing. Because if I'm missing the most basic thing in my life, the most basic tool, what it sounds like, what am I missing my son saying? What am I missing expressions on his face? What am I missing about the type of food I'm eating? Or what am I missing about the way that I'm spending my time? And it was just that this, this she really broke down and says, I think I've missed so much in my life, simply not simply speaking over it or playing things over it. And how often do we wash dishes or cook meals or drive a car or on a bus or take a jog or, or anything? And we have headphones on. How often do we have three or four pieces of media? How many windows are open on your desktop screen at any given time, right? Is that all of these things, is, none of them are bad. But what are they? What are they stopping us from seeing? What are we missing? And I thought um, her way of articulating that it was so profound. And I, I've talked to her many times over the years. I, I, this was a long time ago in another state. Um, and I have to say, she's one of the most interesting and most one of the most reflective adults I know. And also, her child is wonderful. <laughs> like he's a, he's a grown man now, um, and is wonderful too. So I felt like, wow, she really just listening. Just listening for a moment and just being silent really changed her life, and that made me feel great. We've uh, we've spoken to a few of your students, and there were about 10 more who wanted to be interviewed. We're going to hear from someone who has taken uh, the Monk class. This is uh, a former Penn student named Camber Moss. The interview process was unlike any other one that I've ever been a part of in that there are questions, in my understanding, designed to see how you think um, and kind of just to, for Professor McDaniel to understand your perspective on the world or who you are as a person. He would say, where's your t-shirt from? In my case, it was something that I had like secondhand thrifted from from a friend. He asked me, I think it was like, what would your, your worst enemy describe you as? Uh, or actually just in the middle of the interview process, he goes, close your eyes tell me all the things that have been on the desk in front of you the entire time. Me, myself, I, I wasn't that present at all. I could barely cite any of the things that were in front of me. Former student in the Monk class, Camber Moss. Um, Camber's great. Uh, <laughs> I know him yeah, very well. But clearly, I mean, this is an intriguing set of questions you're asking students uh, to decide whether or not this class is a good fit for them. What are you trying to learn about them? It's partially to see, not kind of that how they handle pressure. Um, I answered, I asked different questions to each student, so they're always kind of unpredictable. I make them purposely wait out in the hall for a long time. <laughs> and then when I let them in, they're usually on their cell phones or they're talking to people in the hall or things like that. And then they sit in and the first question I ask them is, what color is the carpet in the hallway? And they all guess the either the confidence ones guess things and the unconfidence ones get really nervous. There's no carpet in the hallway. <laughs> oh, you are <laughs> I mean? mean. But they never guess that. Like the, you're the right? mean prof. Yeah, but, but it's <laughs> no. But it's it's simple things like like that. Um, and I change it up a lot. And but things that they see every day. And I ask them simply about that. Like I remember one of the questions was when you wake up in the morning and you sit up in bed, what direction are you facing? North, south, east, or west? And it's amazing how few students know that. They just, they just don't know what the directions are. And I go, well, what direction are you facing right now in the room? And they don't know. And I was like, all you have to do is look up, see where the sun is. Like, this is not a difficult question to <laughs> know the time of the day. 
it's not question to test their knowledge of like facts or, or science or things like that. It's just to see how present you are. And the funny thing is that I don't want always students that are very hyper aware presence. I want to mix. I want students who are very whimsical sometimes. Some are very serious. Some are very anxious. Some are very down. Some are very eager to please. Some are very rebellious. I want a mixture of personalities and I want a mixture of life experience. So students often ask, well, how do I get in the class? Well, to be honest with you, how I get in the class is be different from the last person I let in the class. <laughs> So that's that's the only secret. So how are you going to figure that out? Because I don't know until I see all the interviews in front of me and I say, okay. And I have a gender balance. That's one thing. I try to you know balance the genders. But that's about it. And I want a variety of students. I want nurses and philosophers and you know, you know hard science people and poets and you know it's students who wouldn't otherwise know each other. And I it's that that mixture makes me very happy because. They are given mm. are they're given an opportunity to be very close to and really listen to someone they probably wouldn't have met before. What about the argument, though, that this kind of monastic life is just not possible for most of us in in the twenty first century? That none of this is doable. Well, if I, I think for a lot of people, it would be seem very very difficult. But I would just ask yourself, how much vacation do you have? How many hours do you spend on the internet? How many much time do you spend talking that's unnecessary? And you might not be able to do a month, but could you do two days? Or could you actually do a week? And could you institute this? Could it make it a family project that you could do together or a project with your friends? I have many students who have started kind of meeting, reading clubs, or they've started like communal clubs that, you know, afterwards, and it's just maybe one day a week or an afternoon a week, or maybe it's just online. But they try, and I think that the effort is certainly something worth trying. And I think most people to discover, and certainly students do, and these are very busy, very high-powered students, very ambitious students, they're amazed how much time they actually do have on their hands when they take away um, all the distractions that come with speaking, all the distractions that come with internet and things like that. For some people, right, it's work, it's young children, it's having two jobs. My parents both worked two jobs. My parents both were, you know, we did not grow up with money of any sort. But they were wonderful parents and hardworking. I certainly, you know, felt loved and I felt supported growing up. And, and they gave us everything they had and they, they could. But they certainly would have had trouble taking time off. And they certainly, you know, they would lose money. They would, they were paid by the hour mostly. And so that and they struggled to keep you know a business open and a small business and that it would have been very difficult for them but they could have found some times and they often did and i think most of us if we turned our vacation into a silent period you know instead of going for three weeks of the vacation go maybe all four days of that long vacation or two week vacation or one week vacation to take things away. I'm not saying people should do this. I'm not recommending it as a program. I'm not trying to franchise this. I'm, I'm no self-help guru. I, I, you know, I, I'm not. I, I, I drink whiskey and I eat cheesesteaks. And like I, I, my model of living is a model for no one. But what I'm saying is that I think it's not as hard as we make it seem to be. And if you really looked at your obligations and you really looked at your week and you really looked at your month and you really looked at your year, I bet you could carve something out. And it's going to take support from your friends and your family, and it's going to take support from maybe your employer. But we have time to do that if, if we try often. 
And even if it's not a month, it can be just a little bit. Professor McDaniel says this course really has a lasting impact on the students who take it. What do they say? I rarely call these people by their actual names. They will always be like their monastic name to me. You know, these people are still my best friends to this day, wherever we are in the world. We reach out and we're like, hey, I'm in town. In some ways, I'm a really good person to ask about the long-standing effects of this class, but in other ways, I'm not the best person because by the time I took the class, I was already majoring in religious studies and studying Buddhism. And so since the class, I have continued to do that. I'm doing a PhD on Buddhism, and I've lived in Buddhist temples several times, and I even took orders once for a short period, so I was fully in orange robe, shaved head. So uh, I don't know if I would point directly to the monk class, I think it would be really interesting to know if someone who went, I don't know, to Wall Street is still having like monastic flashbacks. I've really, I've peeked behind the curtain. And once you have, you can't kind of like undo that. It's something that gnaws at me when I find myself really like lacking presence is this part of me that was so energized, so kind of intense for, for that time period. And knowing that that person kind of like exists, I've actually like, it's taken a long time, but just in the last, I think six months, I've actually like re-embraced this journey of mindfulness, meditation and presence. And it's the closest that I've felt towards my monk class, you know, in the past six, seven years. I would say I'm not always living as I was in that time period, but I think trying to figure out how to balance our, our normal life with those perspectives and values. Thanks to Carolina Hernandez, Claire Elliott, and Camber Moss, who completed Justin McDaniel's Living Deliberately class in the fall of 2016. so much about schools um, doubling down on STEM departments and being um, dismissive of the humanities. And it seems to me this living deliberately class is about as humanities as you can get. How do you make the case, just as we wrap up here, how do you make the case that there's more to being educated than science and tech? I love science and tech, and I think it's great, and I want bridges to hold up, and I want people to cure cancer. We're using a computer right now, and somebody built it and maintains it, so I'm not against these things at all. Uh, my daughter her, herself wants to go into sciences, and so I'm not against these things, and of course, who should be, but I think the value of the humanities, and I'll put it simply this way, is that we begin our life with the humanities, and we usually end it with the humanities. We grow up playing and drawing and making sounds on musical instruments or or throwing rocks or playing sports or learning how to cook and that dance and ballet or hip hop. We 
are doing lots of things that we would call the humanities now. And then we oftentimes get to see that it's impractical and we get away from it. But when we're older, we tend to want to cook and eat, or we want to see theater or, or, or music or, or ballet or opera or rock. We want to go to museums. We want to take vacations to see beautiful churches or to see concerts or things like that, or sports even, which is a humanity. So we have this craving for it, and someone has to produce the content. <laughs> we, need, we need poets, and we need musicians, and we need artists, and we need architects. And that all involves science and math too, but it also involves a creative life that I think we, that we should give to our students and that we should offer them as an opportunity because I think it's extremely practical. Because why are we wanting longer lives through medicine? Why are we wanting more money for property or for you know securing our families' health and happiness, all of these things? We want it so we can participate in the humanities. <laughs> That's We build beautiful buildings with science and technology, but it's the space inside where we watch the concert and we laugh with friends. So that I think the humanities is an essential part of our education. And I think that the humanities or the growth in the humanities in many traditions came out of monastic traditions, the art of gardening, the art of cooking, uh, the art of painting, the manuscript copying and writing and poetry. A lot of these times, the only place in the respective cultures that it was being done in an extensive way were in monasteries. And so perhaps we can get back to that a little and see that by taking away certain things, allowing our mind to be creative and to wander and wonder, and hopefully we will be produce the next kind of creative class and that they will be wonderfully impractical. I've really enjoyed this. Justin McDaniel, thank you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it well. Great questions. and I really appreciate your interest. Justin McDaniel, Professor of Religious Studies and the Edmund J. and Louise W. Kahn Endowed Professor of the Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania. That's it for us this week. This episode was produced by Samir Chabra, McKenna Hadley-Burke, and Arman Egbali. Technical production by Laura Antonelli. The senior producer is Rosie Fernandez. I'm Mary Hines. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.